Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. One Wonderful Night, A Romance of New York is a novel by British author Lewis Tracy, published in 1912. The story is set in early 20th century New York City and follows the adventures of a young Englishman named John D. Hossack who, upon his arrival in the city, becomes entangled in a series of exciting and mysterious events. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z. That's 3Zs.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 Dusk There, sunny behold the city of your dreams. Good old New York, as per schedule. Gee, Ain't she great? The slim, self-possessed youth of 20 hardly seemed to expect an answer, but the man addressed in this pert manner, though the senior of the pair by six years, felt that the emotion throbbing in his heart must be allowed to bubble forth lest he became hysterical. Old New York, do you call it? He asked quietly. The tense restraint in his voice would perhaps have betrayed his mood to a more delicately tuned ear than his companions, but young Howard DeVar, heir of the DeVar million son of Vancouver DeVar, the DeVar who fed multitudes on canned salmon and was suspected of having cornered me at least once, thus woefully misapplying the parable of the loaves and fishes had the wit to appreciate the significance of the question, deaf as he was to its note of longing, of adulation, of vibrant sentiment. Colon non anima mutat, which, in good American, means that it is the same old city on the level and only changes its skyline, he chortled. That you a five spot to a nickel I'll walk blindfolded along 23rd Street from the Hoboken Ferry any time of the day and take the correct turn into Broadway, bar being run over by a taxi or streetcar at the crossings. I'll take the same odds and do that myself. How could any normal human being miss the rattle of the 6th Avenue elevated? DeVar's forehead wrinkled with surprise. Hello, there. Hold on. How often have you told me that you had never seen New York since you were a baby? He cried. Nor have I. Ten years ago, almost to a day, I sailed from Boston to Europe with my people, and I had never revisited New York after leaving it in infancy, though both my father and mother hailed from the Bronx. There's a cog missing somewhere, or my mental gearbox is out of shape. Not a bit of it. One may learn heaps of things from maps and books. Start right in, then, and take an honors course. For behold in me a map and a book and a high-grade society index for the whole blessed little island of Manhattan. Thank you. What is that slender, 
column-like structure to the left of the Singer Building. Devarki's heart at the graceful tower indicated by his friend, then he laughed. Oh, you're uncanny, that's what you are, he said. You've lived so long in the East that you've imbibed its tricks of occultism and necromancy. I suppose you have discovered in some way that that mushroom has sprung up since the old man sent me to Heidelberg? I guessed it, I admit. It does not figure among the downtown skyscrapers in the latest drawing available in London. And do you mean to tell me that you can pick out any of these top notchers merely by studying a picture? Yes. Probably you could do the same if you, like me, felt yourself a return to exile. Young Devar awoke at last to the fact that his companion was brimming over with subdued excitement. Whether this arose from the intense nationalism of an expatriated American or from some more subtle personal cause, he could not determine, but being young, he was cynical. He looked at the strong, set face, the well-knit, sinewy figure, the purposeful hands gripping the fore rail of the promenade deck, then he growled with just the least spice of humorous envy. Say, Curtis, old man, you ought to have a hell of a good time in New York. At any rate, I shall not suffer from lack of enthusiasm, came the quick retort. Devar felt the spur and his restless, bird-like eyes condescended to dwell for a few seconds in silence on the splendid panorama in front. The Lusitania had passed through the narrows before the two young men had strolled along the upper deck of the great steamship to the vantage point of a gangway which made a half-circle around the commander's quarters. Already the Statue of Liberty loomed majestically over the port bow, and the wide expanse of the Hudson River was framed by the wooded slopes of Staten Island, the low shores of New Jersey, and the heights of the Palisades. Somewhat to the right rose the imperial outlines of newest New York, that wonderful city which, even in the memory of children, has raised itself hundreds of feet nearer the sky. A thin, blue haze gave glamour to a delightful scene, glowing in the declining rays of the November sun. The gigantic strands of the Brooklyn Bridge showed through like some aerial path to a fabulous land, while merging fast in the shadows, other dim specters told of even greater engineering marvels higher up the East River. A fleet of bustling vessels, for the most part ferry boats and tugs of every possible size and shape, scudded across the spacious waterways and lent to the picture exactly that semblance of vitality, of energetic purpose, of relentless effort to be up and doing whether the New Yorker was going home from his office or his wife was coming into town for dinner in a theater which one, at least, of the city's uncounted sons had confidently expected to find in it. So John Delancey Curtis drew a deep breath that sounded almost like a sigh, but a pleasant smile illumined his somewhat stern face as he turned to Devar and said, I am giving myself 14 days free run of the town before I go west to visit some relatives. They live in Indiana, I believe. Bloomington, Monroe County, is the latest address I possess. Don't forget to ring me up tomorrow. You remember the hotel, 
the Central, in West 27th Street. Oh, forget it, cried the other Vexley. Why in the world are you burying yourself in that prehistoric shanty? Man alive, the Holland House is only a block away, and there are steen hotels of the right sort strung out along Fifth Avenue, way up to Central Park Dash. It's just a whim, broke in Curtis, who did not feel like explaining at the moment that he was choosing a quiet old inn in a side street because he had been born there. Nevertheless, his words held that ring of decision, of finality and judgment, which invariably forms part of the equipment of men who have lived in wild lands and lorded it over inferior races. Devar was vaguely conscious, and perhaps slightly resentful, of this compelling quality in his newfound crony. Oft times it had quelled him for an instant during some stubbornly contested argument, though he raged at himself just as often for yielding to it, as if, forsooth, he were one of those patient, animal-like, Chinese coolies of whose courage and endurance Curtis spoke so admiringly. Yet he was drawn to the man and clung to his friendship. Right-o. I suppose the place owns a telephone, he snickered, and then hurried away to finish packing. Curtis, whose belongings were locked and strapped hours ago, remained on deck and watched the preparations for bringing the great liner alongside the Cunard Pier. When her engines were stopped in midstream, a number of fussy little tugs began nosing around to starboard. It seemed a matter of sheer impossibility that these puny creatures should move such a monster but faith can move mountains, and in half an hour, or less, the tugs had moved the Lusitania to her allotted berth. Meanwhile, in each wide arch of the customs shed, parterres of joyous faces grew momentarily more distinct. It was easy to discern the very instant when one or other eager group on shore recognized the features of relatives and friends on the ship. A frenzied waving of handkerchiefs, small flags, or umbrellas, an occasional wild whoop, a college cry or a rebel yell would evoke similar demonstrations from the packed lines of onlookers fringing the lower decks. One fact was dominant to the vast majority of the passengers, this was home. Suddenly, Curtis found that he was the sole tenant of the open promenade. Everyone on board had hurried to the less exalted levels, the many to hail their loved ones, the few to watch that first unique demonstration of welcome to a new land which New York gives so generously. Somehow, he had never felt himself more alone not even by night in the solemn plains of Manchuria and he threw off the feeling, almost with contempt. Was not this city his very own? Had he not a birthright in every stone of it? from pavement to loftiest pinnacle? This was his homecoming, too, more real, more literally complete than in the case of any but the few born New Yorkers who might figure among the 2,000 passengers carried by the Lusitania. Insistently claiming his share of recognition, he turned abruptly and made his way to the third deck. There he met a lady, a young bride, who was returning to the States with her husband after a prolonged tour through Europe. Her pretty face was wrung with emotion, 
but a second glance revealed that her distress was due to the pleasant pain of happiness. Have you seen your father and mother? He asked sympathetically, knowing that she had looked forward to this great hour with so much longing. Why yes, she sobbed. They are there somewhere. Be but, oh dear. I cannot see them now for my tears. Someone dug a joyful thumb into Curtis's ribs. It was the girl's husband. Gee, it's fine to be home again, he said huskily. Your leaning towers of Pisa are all right by way of a change, but deal me the Metropolitan for keeps, and I've just spotted my old dad grinning at me like a Cheshire cat from the middle of a crowd wedged so tight that it would take a panic to squeeze in an extra walking stick. So the knowledge was borne in on Curtis that one could feel quite as lonely on sea deck as on A, and, case-hardened wanderer that he was, he badly wanted someone to yell at gleefully among the waiting multitude. Now the gangways were out, and Wes folded east in her willing arms. The stolid masses of steamship and custom shed obliterated the orange and crimson sky still gleaming over the Jersey Shore, and pallid electric lights revealed but vaguely the ever-changing groups beyond the gangways. To an experienced traveler like Curtis, all custom houses were alike, dingy, nerve-wracking, superfluous clogs on free movement. Taking his time, for he had none to embrace or greet with outstretched hand, he strolled quietly off the ship, collected his baggage, which was piled with other people's belongings under a big sea, and nodded to Devar, similarly engaged at D. The boy ran to him for an instant. I may look you up tonight, he said. Dad is in Chicago and won't be here till the morning. You remember we passed the Switzerland after breakfast and she signaled that she was steaming with the port engine only? Yes. Well, her trouble was known by wireless, and there is a man on board whom Dad has to meet. This chap is important. I am not. My dear fellow, don't think of leaving your friends on my account this evening, and Curtis, without looking around, showed that he had noticed the preferred elderly lady and two very pretty daughters who were taking Howard Devar under their elegant wings. Oh, that's my aunt and two of my cousins. I have dozens of them, dozens of cousins, that is. Anyhow, old sport, don't wait in after 7.30, just leave word where you may be about 11. No further protest by Curtis was possible because Tavar's present behavior was of the whirlwind order. He seemed to own as many trunks as cousins and a lantern-jawed customs official was gloating over them already. Perhaps Curtis felt a faint whiff of surprise that his young friend had not introduced him to his relatives, but it vanished instantly. Steamer acquaintance is a nebulous thing at the best, in that respect, the land is more unstable than the sea. At last, the stranger in his own country was consigned to a porter, his two steamer trunks, a kit bag, a suitcase, 
and a bundle of worn golf clubs were placed on a taxi and a breath of clean, cold air blew in on his face as the vehicle hurried along West Street, that broad and exceedingly useful thoroughfare which New York has finally wrested from its waterside slums. The chief city of America is fortunate in the fact that a noble harbor presents her in full regalia to the voyager from Europe. That favorable first impression, unattainable by the majority of the world's capitals, is never lost, and now it enabled Curtis to disregard the garish ugliness of the avenues and streets glimpsed during a quick run to the center of the town. For one thing, he realized how the mere propinquity of docks and wharves infects entire districts with the happy-go-lucky carelessness of Jack ashore. For another, he knew what was coming. Or he fancied that he knew, a state of mind which, particularly in New York, produces brainstorms. His first shock came when the taxi drew up in front of a narrow-fronted, exceedingly tall building equipped with revolving doors while a hall porter, dressed like an archduke, peered through the window and inquired severely. Have you reserved a room, sir? Yes, this was the central hotel, rebuilt, gone skyward, in full cry after its more pretentious a la carte neighbors, and the hall porter was pained by the mere suspicion that the fact was not accepted of all the world of travel. Although the newcomer confessed that he had not made any reservation of rooms, the Archduke graciously permitted him to alight indeed, quelled an incipient rebellion on Curtis's part by ordering a couple of Negroes to disappear with most of the baggage. So Curtis announced meekly to a superclerk that he wanted a room with a bathroom and was allowed to register. As in a dream, he signed John D. Curtis, Pekin, and was promptly annoyed at finding what he had written because, being a citizen of New York, he had meant to claim the distinction and ignore his long years in Cathay. You'll find 605 a comfortable, quiet room, Mr. Curtis, said the clerk. Going to make a long stay, may I ask? A few days, perhaps a fortnight. I cannot say offhand. Well, Sir, I can't fix you better than in 605. From some points of view, the clerk had never uttered a truer word. It was wholly impossible that he or Curtis should guess how an apparently empty and really excellent apartment in the Central Hotel should be full to the ceiling that evening with that dynamite in human affairs called chance. If the slightest inkling of the forthcoming explosion could have been vouchsafed to both men, there is no telling what Curtis might have done, for he was a true adventurer of the D'Artagnan genus, but the clerk would certainly have used all his persuasiveness to induce the guest to occupy some other part of the house. In later periods of unruffled calm, he was wont to date from that moment the genesis of gray hairs among his once raven-hued locks. But chance, like dynamite, not only gives no warning of its explosive properties, but resembles that agent of disruption in following a curiously wayward path. Curtis was piloted into an elevator by an affable Negro, was conducted to 605, which, of course, lay on the sixth floor, and was plunged forthwith into the prosaic business of consigning a good deal of soiled linen to the laundry. 
The room was insufferably hot, so he directed the Negro attendant to shut off the radiator and himself threw open the window. Glancing out, he discovered that he was located in a corner which commanded a distant glimpse of Broadway. Directly before his eyes, in the topmost story of a comparatively low building, a lady who had forgotten to draw the blinds of her flat was apparently indulging in calisthenic exercises, so Curtis, being a modest man, drew the blind in his own room and busied himself with a partial unpacking of his baggage. The door faced the bed, at a distance of some six feet. A wardrobe occupied the recess, and the negro, while unstrapping a steel trunk at the foot of the bed, balanced a bag of golf clubs against the front of the wardrobe in action simple enough in itself, but comparable in its after effects to the setting of a clock attached to a bomb. Soon afterwards, Curtis dismissed the man and noticed casually that the opening of the door caused a pleasant draft of cool air. He wrote a few letters, dressed, electing for a tuxedo and black tie, filled a cigar case, donned a green Homburg hat, threw an overcoat over his left arm, picked up the letters, extinguished the lights, and went out. Again there came that rush of air from the window, and, just as the lock snapped, a crash from the interior announced the falling of the golf clubs, probably owing to a swaying of the wardrobe door. Simultaneously, Curtis realized that he had left the key on the dressing table. It was hardly worth while searching the floor for a chambermaid, he decided to inform the civil spoken clerk and have the key brought to the office, at which sapient resolved Puck, who was surely abroad in New York that night, must have chuckled delightedly. Unhappily, there were other spirits brooding in the city, spirits before whose deathly scowls the prime mischief maker would have fled in terror, and Curtis, all unwitting, brushed against one of them in the hall. His only acquaintance, the clerk, was momentarily absent, so he turned to a bookstall and cigar counter and bought some stamps. A man who had been seated in a sort of cafe, which the newsstand and a flower stall partially screened from the main hall, rose hurriedly when he saw Curtis and purchased a cigar. In doing so, he touched the young man's shoulder and said, pardon. Curtis turned and looked into the singularly unprepossessing face of a swarthy foreigner, a powerfully built, ungainly person of about his own age. That's all right, said he, licking a stamp. I jostled you by accident, monsieur, said the other, in correct French, though with a quaint accent which Curtis, himself no mean linguist, put down to a Polish or Czech nationality. Seeing any fate reign, he replied civilly, and the stamping of the letters being completed, he took them to the letter box. The stranger, who seemed to be rather puzzled, if somewhat reassured, dawdled over the lighting of the cigar and watched Curtis enter the dining room. Then he went back to his chair in the cafe. So much, and no more, did the youth in charge of the counter observe not a great deal, but it went a long way before midnight. A clock in the hall showed that the hour was five minutes to seven. Half hoping that Devar might actually put in an appearance a little later, 
Curtis gave his hat and coat to a Negro and decided to dine in the hotel. Evidently, the place still retained its old-time repute as a family and commercial resort. The family element was in evidence at some of the tables, while, in the case of solitary diners, each man could have been labeled Pittsburgh, Chicago, or Philadelphia, almost without error, by those acquainted with the industrial life of the United States. He ate well, yet simply, and treated himself to a small bottle of a noted champagne. At half past seven, meaning to give Devar ten minutes grace, he ordered coffee and a glass of green chartreuse. As a time killer, there is no liqueur more potent, but, regarded in the light of subsequent occurrences, it would be hard to say exactly how far the cunning monkish decoction helped in determining his wayward actions. Undoubtedly, some fantastic influence carried him beyond those bounds of calm self-possession within which everyone who knew John Delancey Curtis would have expected to find him. His subsequent lightheadedness, his placid acceptance of a mad romance as the one thing that was inevitable, his ready yielding to impulse, his no less stubborn refusal to return to the beaten path of common sense these unlikely traits and a character gifted with the New England darkness of purpose can only be explained, if at all, as arising from some unsuspected hereditary streak of night errantry brought into sudden and exotic life by the good wines of France. Be that as it may, at twenty minutes to eight he paid what he owed, lighted a cigar, donned his hat, and, still carrying the overcoat, was walking to the office to leave word about the key when his attention was attracted by the peculiar behavior of the man who had pushed against him at the cigar counter. This person, apparently obeying a signal from another man of his own type who had just emerged from the elevator, hastened from the cafe and the two ran to the door. Now, the weather had been mild during the afternoon and the revolving shutters of the doorway were folded back to allow the overheated hall being cooled. A porter stood there and it was ascertained afterwards that, noticing a certain air of flurry and confusion about the foreigners, he asked if they wanted a taxi. They gave no heed but continued to gaze up and down the street as though they awaited someone. Equally did they seem to expect, or dread, an apparition from the hotel. It would have been hard to pick out, at that instant, two persons more singularly ill at ease in all New York. Curtis saw that the clerk, now at his desk, was engaged with a lady, so he strolled to the door, being rather interested in the excited antics of the pair on the sidewalk. He had just passed through the door when an automobile dashed up, and he fancied, though he could not be quite sure in the half-light, that the chauffeur nodded to the waiting man. The porter opened the door of the automobile, and a young man in evening dress, and carrying an overcoat, leaped out. Obviously, he was in a desperate hurry, and Curtis heard him say in French, Don't stop the engine, Anatole. I shall be but one moment. At that instant, the two foreigners sprang at him. One, swinging the porter off his feet, seized the newcomer's right arm and, helped by his comrade, endeavored to force him back into the vehicle. 
The effort failed, however, so the second desperado drew a knife and plunged it deliberately into the unfortunate man's neck. It was a fearsome stroke, intended both to silence and to kill, and, with a gurgling cry, its victim collapsed in the grip of his assailants. Curtis, though almost stupefied by the suddenness of the crime, did not hesitate a second when he caught the venomous gleam of the knife. Throwing aside his coat, he rushed forward, but he had to cross the whole width of the pavement, and the murderers, realizing that the capture of one or both was imminent, thrust the inert body in his way. The chauffeur, who must have seen all that happened, had already started the car, the two men scrambled into it, and all that Curtis could do was to run after it and shout frantically to the driver of a taxi coming in the opposite direction to turn his vehicle and block the roadway. The man understood, but was naturally slow to risk a sharp collision merely at the order of an excited gentleman in evening dress. He stopped quickly enough, but by the time his help was available, pursuit was hopeless, the one thing Curtis could do he had done while running up the street he had deciphered the number of the car, X24305. Before Curtis rejoined the day's hall porter a small crowd had gathered and it was difficult to get near the body lying on the curb. A man picked up an overcoat and Curtis, cool and clear-headed now, took it and appealed to him if he knew where the nearest doctor lived to run thither at top speed. The man obeyed him instantly. Meanwhile, let me see to the poor fellow, he said. I am not a doctor, but I know enough about wounds to say whether those scoundrels have killed him or not. The throng yielded to an authoritative voice, and some of the more sensible bystanders formed a ring, thus securing a semblance of light and air around the prostrate man. Curtis struck a match, and it needed no second glance to learn that the stranger's lung had been pierced by an almost vertical thrust. Indeed, he was already dying. The poor lips, from which blood and froth were bubbling, strove vainly to articulate words which, in the prevalent hubbub of alarm and excitement, it was impossible to distinguish. A policeman came, and, as a traffic station for the precinct happened to lie within a couple of doors, the moribund form was carried in and placed on a stretcher kept there for use in emergency. A doctor was soon on the spot, but he arrived just in time to record the last flicker of life in the tortured eyes. Then, as one in a dream, Curtis gave the policeman the details of the crime, the name of the chauffeur, and the number of the car, his testimony being borne out to some extent by the hall porter, and, so far as the car was concerned, by the sharp-eyed driver of the taxi. His own name and address were taken, and a police captain and a couple of detectives, called to the scene by telephone, thanked him for his alertness in securing valuable clues, not only in regard to the car and chauffeur, but also in describing the features, figure, and dress of one of the criminals. Finally, he was warned to hold himself in readiness to attend the opening of an inquest on the following morning, and the police intimated that they did not desire the presence of witnesses while the dead man's clothing was being scrutinized. So Curtis went out into the street, and, 
with no other purpose than to avoid the publicity and questioning of the crowd gathered in and around the hotel, sauntered into Broadway. At the corner he halted for a moment to put on the overcoat. He had gone some few yards up the brilliantly illuminated thoroughfare when he fancied that his nervous system needed the tonic of a cigar, and he searched in the pockets of the overcoat for a box of matches he had placed there before leaving his bedroom. The box had gone, but in the right-hand pocket his fingers closed on a long, narrow envelope made of stiff linen paper which somehow seemed unfamiliar. He drew it out and examined it standing in front of a well-lighted shop window. Then he whistled with sheer amazement, as well he might. The envelope held a marriage license for two people named Jean de Courtois and Hermione Beauregard Grandison. In a word, he was wearing the dead man's overcoat, and the fearsome conviction leaped to his brain that the dead man must be Jean de Courtois.